It's time now for Money Matters with the Lewis family, Doug, Linda, and Deborah, owners of Lewis Financial Management, a Raleigh-based family-owned financial planning firm providing investment and financial planning advice since 1983. Doug and Deborah are certified financial planners, CFPs, who can answer any of your questions about investments, retirement planning, and estate planning. Why not call Doug, Linda, and Deborah right now at 919-860-9783 with your financial planning questions. That's 919-860-9783. Now, here's Doug, Linda, and Deborah. Investments offered through SFA Inc. Investment advice through Lewis Financial Management. SFA Inc. and Lewis Financial Management are not related entities. And we are the Lewis family, ready to answer your questions tonight. This is Linda Lewis, and thank you for joining us on Money Matters on News Radio 680 WPTF. And I'm Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And I'm Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. And we're here to answer your questions for the next hour. Well, Doug, I saw a very uh, interesting article about how, wondering how can the world events affect a person's portfolio. Did you see that? Yeah, I did, because we all know the story. It doesn't matter how long we look back in history, the stock market has recovered from unprecedented world events like acts of war and financial crises and natural disasters. But despite the market's recoveries, these are still alarming events. And they're still going to cause investors to worry about their portfolios. That is just, uh, that's the world of investing. There's no doubt about it. It really is. So, you know, what are some of the um, things that are answers to this question? Well, that is really the question that people want to know. If indeed world events are going to be happening and if they can affect my portfolio, then what do we do about it? Well, the first thing we realize, we have to realize, is that turmoil can actually create opportunity. Well, that doesn't sound bad. No, it's not bad because with geopolitical or market-related, or weather-related, or terrorist events, then there are some people who always claim that these are reasons not to invest, but, you know, (laughs) that may be the worst answer. A natural disaster like an earthquake, a tsunami like in Japan, these can devastate a country's economy, and turmoil in the Middle East, we know all about that, that can affect energy prices, a terrorist attack, an ISIS attack, Military upheaval, super hurricanes, all these things may increase the reluctance of even businesses to operate or trade there. Well, you know what? While it may create temporary instability in the stock market, world events can definitely create opportunities for the long-term investors. That's right. That's exactly right, Deborah. because when an event strikes an emotional or fearful response that could result in selling your investment, then... More often than not, a more measured and patient response is what's necessary. Now, one way to lessen the potential risk of these tumultuous events is by having a diversified portfolio. Ah, there we go. A diversification. diversification. That's exactly my answer. Because if a, ver- if a portfolio has stocks that happen to be more exposed because of an event, it could be balanced out by stocks that are not directly affected. If you have questions, the Lewises have answers. Call them at Lewis Financial Management, 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. For example, 
You remember the tech bubble? Certainly do. And the subsequent collapse of tech stocks. These inordinately affected the information tech sector. But then having exposure to other sectors that weren't hit as hard would have actually lessened the impact and lightly helped a portfolio overall. So a portfolio of mutual funds with different types of funds can provide the diversification that gives opportunity in the midst of turmoil. Well, that's good advice. Diversification and and watching out for that diversification. Right. You know, um, there's probably a couple more here on, on how we can answer this question on how the world events might affect our portfolios. What about the level uh, an active manager can take in, in, in looking at the underlying companies in those mutual funds? I think that's a crucial distinction to make because investing company by company is what an active manager is actually doing. Not looking at timing events, but the active management itself chooses specific companies. Then if there's political instability or a major upheaval in a particular country, we're not only looking at the overall picture, but we're also looking at the impact on a particular company and the growth prospects of that company. And so that is really a key difference, the company-by-company investing style of active management. And that's the second way that we can take advantage of these political turmoils. Yeah, volatility. I guess the biggest thing that we want to remind listeners tonight is keep a long-term perspective. You know, things. Th- you know, there have been cases where markets have plummeted or soared on the basis of just a geopolitical event. Right. And with that instability not going away anytime soon, it's because of this that we need to remind ourselves that we're long-term investors. That's right. That you we're know, always able to look beyond the political volatility, the impact on the market. Because a lot of times markets may be reacting in a very short-term way to something that in the longer term is not going to have any significant impact at all. That's right. And we know the world events are out of our control, so there's nothing we can really do about it, but we can be prepared. And a lot of that preparation is through diversification, thinking long-term. These uh, points you've made, Doug, are really good. I would say um, probably the, uh, the most important thing is to work with someone. Work with a certified financial planner. This will help you not fear or uh, have an urge to sell to that, them. That's right. And that's, that's our call to all the listeners, to all the investors. Call us at the office. And we will meet with you and show you how you can go ahead and handle the world events in your portfolio. Our office number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Call us at Lewis Financial Management and we'll be happy to schedule an appointment with you to address your concerns. And maybe it's time for a second opinion on your portfolio. Or maybe you've had some recent recommendations from whoever you're meeting with, whether it's an advisor, a broker, or whoever it is that you're working with at the present time, and you still have some questions. It's important to have that comfort level that what you're doing, you have an understanding about, and that you have a clear mind going forward that whatever you're doing, it's in line with your goals and objectives. And at Lewis Financial Management, we're here to assist you with answers to your questions. 919-872-7000. Call that number right now. We'll be happy to call you back and schedule an appointment with you. Well, Doug, Linda, a lot of um, listeners will write in 
and ask their question uh, instead of calling in when they feel like it would take up too much time. So I've got one for tonight. I thought maybe we might address it. There were you know, nine, ten questions asked, and we, and we can just pick a few. How does that sound? Sounds good. Fire away. Okay. All right. Well, the first of the questions was in regard to what do you consider the optimum mix of non-retirement versus tax-deferred retirement investments? And they gave a little bit about their situation. But just in general, Doug, how do you answer that question? Yeah, this is a very important question because if you are nearsighted, you can get yourself in serious trouble. What do I mean by nearsighted? Many people sock away as much as they can into their 401k plan. Uh, when they meet with me or meet with you, Deborah, so often, you know, we will hear the que- right. yeah, we'll hear the answer. Well, I'm putting in the maximum. <laughs> okay. Well, that sounds good because number one, I uh, you it means you're saving. You means you're saving. That's number one. And number two, you're getting a tax deduction because you're taking a withdrawal before your paycheck comes to you. So you're paying taxes on left on less. So all these things are good, but there's a problem being forced uh, in short sighted in this case because at the time that you retire now if this is your investment portfolio let's say you've now accumulated eight hundred thousand dollars in your 401k plan and all of your retirement accounts well now as you start to withdraw the money you're paying the highest taxable the highest possible tax you're paying ordinary income tax so the other side of the equation would be well suppose i just didn't do anything, forgot about retirement plans, and just had a personal investment portfolio, non-retirement. Well, that's wonderful at retirement because then you pay the lowest possible tax. (laughs) (laughs) But on the other hand, there is the need to go ahead and get some balance. And so my answer always to those who are able, to the younger ones as you're starting, seek to have a balance of 50% in tax-deferred, meaning IRAs and 401ks, and 50% in non-tax-deferred, after-tax money. If you do it that way, now, of course, on the the retirement side, you have to go ahead and contribute up to the matching level of the employer. Just silly to throw away free money. That's right. But beyond that, you need to be careful and look for a target of 50% and 50%. Well, that's good. That's good advice. You have so many questions, and Doug, Linda, and Deborah have the answers. Call Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Let's take our caller. Hi, Bill. This is Linda Lewis. How can we help you today? Well, Linda, I'll tell you, I got a question on whether I'm I'm saving enough. Yes, sir. Um, 55. Yes, sir. And I'd like to retire at 58. Okay. Now, the pension will be about $2,000 a month. All right. And what we have now is income of about 100000 And I've got about 500000 in tax-deferred accounts. So, so you're, you're, okay, so you've got 500000 in tax-deferred accounts. Your current income is 100000 Is that you combined with your wife? Yes. All right. And will she continue to work? No. What are your expenses? Other than what we're saving, we spend the rest of it. So we're saving about twenty thousand a year. So you're spending about eighty thousand. And then, of course, the tax. taxes. Taxes. How much you spend last year in taxes? That one I can't answer. Well, if we <laughs> assume that you spent uh, maybe uh, thirty thousand in taxes last year. Okay. And you're saving twenty thousand, then that says that you're spending fifty thousand. Okay. 
If you're spending 50000 then what does he want to do? Linda, he wants to find out whether he'll have 50000 in three years. And you're saying that in retirement, you'll get 2000 a, a month. month. That's 24000 That's 24, But do you have, Bill, anything outside of the tax-deferred investments? I mean, do you have, like, any other personal funds? Just uh, emergency money. So you don't have, like, your own mutual funds in your own name no. or CDs or anything like that? No. But that's okay. He'll be 58 years old. That's yeah, right. no, I, you'll be able uh-huh. to access that money. So let's see what his shortfall is, Linda. He needs to have, he needs to get $50,000 before tax, which means he probably needs to get about, uh, about 75000 He needs to get 50000 after tax to live. So he needs to end up with maybe about $75,000 coming in from everything, right? And he's got twenty four of that already from the pension. So he's going to be shy about $51,000 that's got to come from somewhere, and that's going to come from, has to come from his investments or his retirement plan. Now, you said your retirement plan is worth how much, about 500 Yes. All right, total 500 Well, obviously, if you were to try and do it today, you couldn't make it. That's right. Because 500000 will not give 51000 a year income. The question is, if we can get it growing between now and the next three years, will it grow big enough to where then it will throw off 51000 a year income? And uh, I'm not at my office. I'm down at the station during the week. I'm at the office. If you were at my office, I would be able to work some numbers for you a little better. That number at the office, by the way, is 919-872-7000. But if we go ahead and think that we can grow that 500000 to where it's worth about seven hundred, about 700000 if we got it up to seven fifty, I would say you're all right. Uh, because 750 could comfortably give you 51,000 a year. Okay. And 51,000 a year plus your regular 24,000 a year would give you 75,000 a year. And then your 75,000 a year subtracting your taxes would leave you the 50,000 a year that we think you need. Now we've got a lot of iffy sort of assumptions here since we're doing this real quick on the back of a pad of paper. At 62, the Social Security would kick in. Oh, right. yeah. So we have right. other so we, sources of income. Yeah, well, no, we got a gap. We got a gap period there because we don't, right. and we also got a penalty period. For the first year and a half, we'd have to pay a 10% penalty. It would be an interesting equation. By the way, the money right now, what kind of retirement plan is it in? It's tax deferred. For, it's a combination of 401k and IRA. Uh, yeah, if you, um, if the IRA portion we could work with now, the 401k portion we could only work with at retirement. But if I had the whole thing spread out in front of me, I could go ahead and make some recommendations about how to try and make sure that you would get it. And then we would try and grow it up to age 58 and a half, 58 when you retire. Then we have two choices. We can do, uh, there's a special section in the tax code that will let me get that money out for you and not pay the 10% tax penalty. Is that only for the IRA or both? That's for both. Okay. But uh, we have to do it with a, uh, a five-year freeze. Uh, however, that would work. We could do that. Or we could just go ahead and look at the living expenses at that time and see how close we are. And we may not have to go ahead and do it. We may be able to go ahead and do it on a variable. Uh, you have no money of your own invested anywhere? No. Okay. Yeah, it would be a very interesting equation. I think we could work with it and we could do it. Uh, worst case is we have to pay a penalty for a year. Uh, that would be your choice, whether to pay the penalty for the year and a half to get to where age 59, you don't have to go ahead and you can then adjust according to your needs. And then two, three more years later, we could do the Social Security. Yeah. Yeah, listen, jot down my office number. It's okay. 
972-7000. Okay. That's 919-872-7000. And some people remember that as just USA 7000. And if you call my office during the week, Linda can check my schedule. Uh, generally, we're booked a little ahead of time. But whatever uh, meeting time I've got, she'll set up an appointment and tell you how we charge and so on. Okay. Okay. All right. Thanks so much for calling, Bill. Thank you. Take Bye-bye. care. Well, Doug, another question uh, for this client was, or for this uh, listener was what are the advantages of transferring from current funds? And I think they were really asking more in regard to, I have current investments, and how do I make this decision on whether or not I should move or stay where I am? Yeah, there's there's going to be advantages and disadvantages, Deborah. There's definitely definitely uh, uh, two sides to this question, because let's say they're in a particular mutual fund family, okay, and they're considering transferring from that family to another investment in that family, or they're considering transferring from that family over to another family. Well, we have to realize that families of mutual funds have philosophies. And uh, you need to understand the philosophy because you can move from fund to fund within a family for as long as you live and never pay a commission again, never pay any charges. Those are free moves. On the other hand, if you move from one family to another family, then you're going to very often trigger a load or a cost. And so my feeling is that the the first thing is to find out the philosophy of the family. You want to be comfortable that the family that you choose has uh, a similar philosophy to what you're looking for. You want to know the tenure, the, the life uh, of the managers, the tenure of the managers on the funds. You want to look at Morningstar reports in those funds. And once you've done that, then you want to uh, consider what's the cost. And that's the dis- disadvantage. Very often, when you're going from one family to another, you will pay a load, a sales charge. And so you need to be careful that you're going not from the frying pan into the fire, but going into a family where you will have many choices and you're going to be comfortable with the overall philosophy of the family. You know, it circles back to our original uh, point that we were making, which is a lot of the diversification that is needed as you develop an investment portfolio, whether it's in an IRA or retirement account and or outside of that, it needs to be usually with a family of funds that have the breadth. That's right. To change with you. You know, your investment options at 20, just getting out of college, starting your first job, might be very different and should be very different than you at 40 and then you at 60. So this this knowing the philosophy of the family of funds is really important and also gives you a long-term relationship with that family of funds. It should be. Yes, it should. You're listening to Money Matters with the Lewis family on News Radio 680 WPTF. And if you've decided that you're ready to make a decision about having a second look at your investment portfolio or addressing estate planning issues, college funding plans for your kids that are near to uh, attending college, or maybe you've got a situation where you're recently widowed and you need some advice. Call us at Lewis Financial Management. We'll be happy to schedule an appointment with you to address your financial planning issues. That number in Raleigh is 919 872 
That's 919-USA-7000. Mary Ann, how can I help you with your money matter this evening? I am one of several recipients of a rather large estate. The executor will have to file with the IRS. All right, and when you say you're the recipient, has someone passed away already? Or you yes, think yes, you... someone passed away about four months ago. All right, so this is a relative of yours that passed away, and the executor is... Is a bank in Arizona. All right. I'm just curious. Uh, they keep saying that it will probably take about two years to settle this estate because when you send in the uh, forms to IRS, which have to be done in nine months, and they're going to wait till nine months, after that, they say when they audit, sometimes it takes a year, a year and a half. My question to you is, you, do you have any idea how we heirs could expedite that? That's a real good question, and I have a sneaking suspicion that it may be possible. My guess would be, and I would not like to be quoted on this, what I'd rather do is have you call me at the office and I will put us in touch with an estate planning attorney. I work with several very closely. How many heirs are there? Well, there are, uh, there are four of us that will get the residual. And, uh, there are four heirs? All right. Uh, well, give me some numbers so I know what we're talking about. Oh, the, well, when it gets to us, it won't be very much. The estate's about uh, $1.8 million. All right, so a $1.8 million estate, and are there heavy credit, uh, creditors against the estate? There are no, there are no, there, it was about ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 worth of bills to pay off, and that's all been done. All right. But the bank is going to take about 50000 bucks, and then we don't know what the lawyer's fee will be. Mm-hmm. And then there's one other uh, a gift of $100,000, and everything that's left gets divided four ways. Well, that'd be a very good question that I would like to run by one of the attorneys that we work with and see if a unanimous decision amongst the heirs can change executors. Oh, it's uh, no, that's not my question. It's too late to change executors. We're way into it. If that was to have been done, and I thought of that, I, I thought of writing the judge and asked that my brother be allowed to continue. He had power of attorney for two years to pay all the bills, but it's too late. The bank has got a. It, the bank is in the same state where the the court is. They're not, and we're all from someplace else. I, what I had in mind is there anything we could do about writing directly to the IRS office saying, "Look, you know, is there anything we can do to expedite this audit?" That they apparently will audit. And I thought maybe if the four of us said, "Look, you know, let's go with it. We're all close to seventy years old, or some of us are fifty, but most of them are seventy. Yeah, I think there are some things that you can do. Again, I, I'd want to be, I'd want to be using an attorney. But I think there are some things you. It shouldn't take two years to file a tax return. That's for sure. No, no, it only takes nine months to file the return. You have to file it in nine months. So why is the estate being audited? Oh, they just assume that every uh, estate of any size gets audited by the IRS. Well, that's not necessarily true at all. Well, I, I thought the bank is a little. Uh, but I thought maybe if I wrote and this would be the Ogden, Utah branch, I thought maybe I'd just write and ask them to do an immediate audit. Well, <laughs> but you've had no experience with that, I think. No, I don't it's think you... a little you'd... bit off of your... I don't. Well, it's not off. It's, it's not off my area. I, 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 I'm working in this area all the time, but I'm working with an attorney. Is what I'm saying. We oh, generally, we we generally bring an estate planning attorney in who is represent who who who's able to represent himself before the IRS. Oh, and as I see. You see what I'm saying? Ah, maybe that's what the four of us could do. Well, that, that's that's exactly what I'm saying. If you will call me at my office, I'll, I'll see about getting us in in touch with 
an attorney who works in this area and who is able to go ahead. You see, you, your attorneys fall into several categories. Number one, you've got estate planning attorneys that simply go ahead and prepare wills and trusts and so forth. They're very uncomfortable dealing in the area of taxes and accounting. Uh-huh. There are other estate attorneys who are also CPAs and who are very comfortable in this area, and they like to actually represent you before the IRS. Uh-huh. You see what I'm saying? I see. Well, I didn't know that. That's exactly. Very useful. Exactly. And the consumer doesn't know, typically, they're not questions that you ask an attorney, and quite frankly, uh, they're not types of questions that you would ex- be expected to ask. But the attorneys that I like are the ones who are able to go in and work in both areas simultaneously. They know their ways around the IRS, and they also know the estate tax laws. Right. You see what I'm saying? So you, yes, you want somebody who's expert in estates and taxation. Estates and taxation and comfortable dealing with the IRS, exactly, uh, and has represented ones before the IRS. So, Marianne, if you'd like to call me at the office, I'll go ahead and see about getting us in touch with someone that uh, that I've worked with and that I can feel comfortable recommending to you. Well, I appreciate that very much. You're sure welcome. Thank you for your time. You're welcome. My office number, by the way, is 872 7000. Okay. Thank you very, very much. Thank you for calling, Marianne. Bye bye. Bye bye now. There are five questions that people should ask in dealing with estate planning matters. Number one, what is an estate plan? Well, I think that's a very important question. What is an estate plan? An estate plan is a plan that encompasses all of what you want to happen at the time that you pass away. So we need to have, uh, for sure, we need to have a will. We may need to have trusts. We may need to have arrangements within those trusts of how much goes to my spouse, if I have a spouse, how much goes to my children, how much goes to be held in trust for my children. But we need to have wills and trusts, first of all. Then second of all, we need to have powers of attorney. We do need to have a power of attorney that handles financial matters. Like uh, if you become incapacitated, you haven't died now, but part of your estate plan says, suppose I'm incompetent, who signs my tax return? That's a durable power of attorney. And then, of course, we want a health care power of attorney. Again, I haven't died, but who makes the decisions of whether to operate or not operate in a case in which I'm seriously incapacitated? So we need powers of attorney. We need wills and trust. We need HIPAA authorization. That's very important these days. Authorization of who can get my medical records because If you don't have those authorizations ahead of time, then your wife can't get them, your husband can't get them, your children can't get them, and you're out in the dark when you want to be able to know what's happening. You know what, Doug? When someone asks me uh, what, uh, what is an estate plan, I usually sum it all up by saying it's putting in writing everything that you'd like to say when you can't speak for yourself. I like that, Deborah. You know, so you may not, it may be from the grave, I've died and I'd like to I'd like for someone to know these things or I might be incapacitated. I can't speak for myself. I've been in a car wreck or I've had a stroke, but I need to know that I've written or have written something down that would say what I would like to say for myself when I can't. Number two, why have an estate plan? Well, I think that's the very issue that we're talking about. Why have an estate plan? Because if not, there is an estate plan waiting for you. Yeah. Yeah. It's the uh, the law. It's the law. It's the government. Yeah. Uh, So if you don't have it written down, 
it's there waiting for you, which may be the very opposite of what you want. Thirdly, what is involved in an estate plan? Well, as I said, the involvement is really meeting with a certified financial planner and getting all of those thoughts down on paper, as Deborah said, and then from there going ahead and having documents created. And then even more important in many cases is if there is a trust, funding that trust. Fourth, how can I start building my plan? And fifth, well, I would answer. Is, go ahead. An estate settled. Well, I, w- I would answer the fourth question: How can I start building my plan by beginning tonight? Write down what you would want in general terms to be able to say either from the grave or when you can't speak from yourself from a hospital bed. Write it down. Know what you would want to ask someone questions about. Right. And then I would say, how is an estate settled? That's probably best answered by you, Doug. Go ahead. Well, this, the final settlement of the estate, if it's, uh, of course, we have to have a tax return, and that very often is at least within the first nine months. Sometimes it can be later than nine months after the person passes away. Uh, if indeed you've done it wisely enough to use the revocable living trust, you can bypass probate. So that part of the settlement can be done uh, immediately. But the settlement is done when all of the creditors that are out there have had a chance to come against the estate, when the tax return has been filed, and then all the beneficiaries have received what was left in the instructions in the will. If you would like to make an appointment with the Lewises, call Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Well, very good. That's good advice. I'm sure people... Um, either don't want to or have put off thinking about how practically to implement an estate plan. And this is probably uh, very helpful for a lot of people. All right, Doug, let's take another call. John, this is Doug Lewis with Money Matters. How can I help you this evening? Uh, yes, Doug, I had a question for you. My wife and I are going through uh, refinancing our mortgage now. Uh, and the question that I have is, is we're going looking at the options of going from a 30 to a 15-year type arrangement, Mm -hmm. uh, comparing that to, say, the additional amount that, well, the situation is that we don't, our our new mortgage is only available in a 30. We're going with a 525 plan. Right. Uh, And we're comparing whether or not to pay the additional amount to, say, pay it a 15-year amortization versus putting that additional money into some other type of uh, investment. How old are you, John? I'm uh, 28. 28 years old. Are you, are you employed? Sure. What's your income? Uh, around uh, 45. 45,000. Your wife's income? Is she working? Yes. What's her income? Uh, around 30. 30,000. Combined family income, about 75,000. Any children at home? Uh, none yet. No children. What we call financial planning for dinks. Dual income, no kids. Dinks. That's right. Uh, living expenses should be able to live on actually probably one of the, one of the incomes. Right. Would hope so. That sounds good. That means you. All right. Now, what you've just basically asked, and what's the size of the mortgage? Well, one other thing I'd like to, to say is that the, the house that we're in now, we're you know would like to well uh, you know optimistically, or we're looking in five years or less to move out of this house into a larger house. So we're we're taking a short term view versus they keeping this house and paying it off. So that we definitely know that we will be moving out within four to five year time frame. All right. Uh, how big is the mortgage? Uh, it's the, uh, around, the, debt, the uh, amount of the, that you want to borrow, uh, around 105, $105,000. What's the value of the house? 
130,000. And what is the delta, the difference between the 30-year and the 15-year payment? Uh, around, if I recall, about $250. $250 extra a month. Right. That, that's the- that's Right. That's on the 525 on the 30-year versus the 15-year fixed. Uh, right, right. Gotcha, gotcha. The okay. question is, in five years, can you invest $250 a month and accumulate more than the interest rate on your loan? If you can't do that with your eyes shut, something's wrong. Right, right. Something's wrong. Uh, if I could have, I would have had you even be in lower. And because you tell me that you're leaving in five years, see, with a 2% annual cap, you could actually be even get it, be getting any better a better return, but yeah, you'll accumulate more. Any decent mutual fund is going to go ahead and get more than five percent for you over the next five years. Right. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. yeah you'll accumulate far more this way. That, that's pretty much what I've been. I guess. Yeah. Now the whole trick to this thing is that money better be invested in a pay yourself first plan at the beginning of every month. You'll right. feel very. You'll feel like a real fool if five years from now that money is not sitting somewhere having accumulated. Right. I, I guess what. From everyone that I've kind of, you know, just around work and whatnot, I'm knocking it around with different people is that do you want to accept that risk, you know, whereas if you're putting it into your house or that you're not making really anything other than what your interest rate of your mortgage is, you know that you'll get that money out when you sell the house. Yeah. Unfortunately, you're listening to this, the, the, these people who are your new financial planners and they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> right. In my opinion, they don't. Right. Okay. Yeah. You need to go ahead and select a good mutual fund, work with a certified financial planner to help get a, a mutual fund that will, that will accomplish your objectives and then go ahead and have that money drafted at the beginning of every month and you'll be tickled pink five years from now. Right. If you would like some more information on this, I'll be happy to either send you some information or discuss it with you further, and you can call me at the office, and the number is 872-7000. That's USA 7000, and I'll be happy to do what I can to answer your questions. Okay. Thank you for calling, John. Uh Bye-bye. Well, Doug, Deborah, it is always good when folks um, ask questions about what is the best way to get a mortgage. Absolutely. Right. It turns out that, you know, no matter what the thing is that you're having a, a consideration about whether or not to buy, especially on a monthly basis, but it really always comes back to, well, as long as you are doing some investing in a way that we call it our office, pay yourself first at the beginning of the month, you won't feel like a fool at the end. You, you'll understand that it paid off because five years later, 10 years later, John will have what he has he, he what he gave up and what he has made more in, in investing that two fifty every month. Exactly. I agree. And that's you. how we accumulate is on a monthly basis. It's it's the beginning of the month. It's it's knowing that I'm gonna spend what's left over. And the better you get at that, the more you can set aside a month. Well, Doug, um earlier we were talking about uh accumulating and some folks have IRAs over their lifetime. But what happens when you inherit an IRA? What are some of the hazards of inheriting an IRA? Well, you're right, Linda, because families right now we're seeing are increasingly getting large chunks of their inheritances by means of uh, retirement accounts, 401ks, pensions, IRAs, and retirement accounts generally require their owners to fill out specific forms naming beneficiaries, which are totally separate from wills. 
When the owner dies, the designated beneficiary, if there is one, can choose to stretch out distributions across his life expectancy, giving the remaining assets more time to grow. No taxes are going to be due until the withdrawals are made. But there's one big exception. When surviving spouses are the sole heirs, they follow different, uh, they follow different distribution rules. Yeah, so this, uh, you're touching, Deborah, on the matter of stretch, the stretch IRA provisions. And that's very powerful because if your beneficiary designations have been proper, then you have the ability to go ahead and stretch the IRA. Do you want to explain a little bit of that to us, Deborah? Sure. Um, stretching an IRA is the capacity to, instead of having to take all of the inheritance that would be coming to you in an IRA out of the IRA protection immediately and have to pay taxes on it. Let's, let's they, say it was 500000 um, So instead of having to pay taxes on that 500000 you would have the ability to keep it inside the IRA protection for a longer amount of time because you could stretch it over your lifetime instead of having to take it in a lump sum or even in a smaller amount of years. But really, it's the ability to withdraw a smaller portion than having to take the whole amount. It's that ability that is tricky. You have to be careful with IRA designation uh, forms They need to be filled out correctly. And then once you become a beneficiary, you need to be speaking with a person who is competent in this area because the account registration needs to be reflected as such so that you can take advantage of having small income amounts coming to you over your lifetime versus all in one lump sum. Yeah, this this touches on something very significant about what are the rules. Uh, First of all, a spouse can always inherit an IRA of a half a million or a million or 10 million tax-free. She may not want to, but she can always do it because she has that provision. But anybody other than a spouse, like children, if they inherit it, then they are faced with a serious tax issue. And if they can stretch the payment of those taxes then that becomes very powerful. And so there is a way to stretch. Sometimes you can stretch it over 20 years by using these stretch provisions based on what's called the RMD, the required minimum distribution. So these these small withdrawals can can be taken over many years that will allow the account's pre-tax assets to increase in value, and then the heirs can postpone paying the taxes until they take those distributions, right? That's a very good point, Linda, because the longer that it's in the IRA protection and on the smaller amount coming out, what's in there can still grow. That's exactly right. You know, um, earlier we were saying how important beneficiaries are. Uh, It is important to verify who your beneficiary of your IRA is. Yeah, how important it is to, to designate a beneficiary. Right. And by designate, a lot of terms are thrown out there, but really what this means is completing the form that is attached to your IRA, provided to you by your custodian, and it's a legal document. So if your custodian has not informed you that your 
uh, it, it really is. It's it's um, something that will be um, identified as to how the assets will be passed. All right. You have so many questions, and Doug, Linda, and Deborah have the answers. Call Lewis Financial Management at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Well, Doug, mutual funds are one of the most practical and easy ways for people to invest for long-term goals such as college or retirement. And I know that there are some common questions about mutual funds that people have. Common questions like what, Lynn? Well, the basic one is, what is a mutual fund? Well, you know, I never thought of people asking that question, but it's a good question, obviously. What is a mutual fund? A mutual fund, Linda, is a regulated company that pools together money from many individual investors through the sale of shares and in turn buys stocks or bonds on behalf of the shareholders. Now, the price of those shares is called the net asset value, and that will increase or decrease depending on the current value of the different stocks or bonds in the mutual fund. Shareholders may receive income from their mutual fund, or they may profit or lose when they sell their shares, just as they would by investing individually in stocks. Well, Doug, why should a person invest in a mutual fund? What are the advantages? All right. Well, I guess the first advantage everybody uh, should be realizing is it offers diversification, Linda. It's the old story of don't put all your eggs in any one basket because a single mutual fund might hold 100 or 200 stocks and bonds. So you could buy $10,000 of a mutual fund and have 100 stocks instead of putting $10,000 into one stock. Now, the second advantage, I guess, is the one of management professional management you've got someone managing those stocks and bonds right and and what are some of the other advantages well, i guess some of the other advantages linda they're cheap to get into also you can reinvest not a lot of stocks let you reinvest the dividends but you can do automatic reinvesting of your dividends which lets you compound your return and of course you can always get out they're liquid they're liquid investments so i guess these are the main advantages of a mutual fund People also wonder, Doug, are mutual funds insured like CDs or savings accounts? That's something you always need to remind clients is no, they're not insured. Mutual funds are not federally insured, even if they happen to be sold through banks. The investment return is not guaranteed, and you can lose money if you sell your shares for less than you paid for them. But mutual funds don't make loans like banks do, and they are closely regulated. So the risk of a mutual fund actually going broke is extremely small. If this sounds familiar to your situation, call the office in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. One other common question that people uh, have, Doug, is are all mutual funds similar? Well, that's a good question also, Linda. No, they're not similar. Mutual funds have different investment objectives and different levels of risk. For example, some try to generate lots of current income, while others shoot for making big profits on fast-growing stocks. Funds have become very, very specialized these days. Some invest only in tax-free municipal bonds and big company stocks for other funds and corporate bonds for other funds, U.S. government securities, small-cap stocks, gold, silver, internationals foreign countries, all kinds, even special sectors of the economy like healthcare funds and technology funds. Yet, even still, there are funds that try to embrace lots of different categories. So no, all mutual funds are not similar. 
Now, how many different funds should a person own? I mean, how does a person determine how many funds they should have? There are probably as many answers to that question as there are stockbrokers and financial planners, Linda. But my own advice is that, number one, it depends on your own investment goals, the amount of money you've got to invest, the time that you have to watch your funds. But there should be an asset allocation model on your portfolio, and it should encompass different things. But overall, you should have an asset allocation model superimposed upon your portfolio with a uniform unit size. And I guess more important than that is how does one pick a mutual fund? I mean, how does a person go about picking, choosing which one they should have? Well, I'm prejudiced, but I think with the help of a certified financial planner, you need to also be sure of the fund's objectives, the degree of risk, make sure they match your investment goals and your comfort level. You want to compare the fund's total return on each invested dollar with similar type funds, preferably over a five or 10 year period. Uh, of course, past performance is never a guarantee of the future, but it's a guide. You want to look at the fund's fees and their expenses, both the upfront sales charges and also the ongoing management fees and how they compare with similar funds. And you also want to most importantly know, has the fund management been consistent with its stated objectives? And another common question that people uh, wonder about mutual funds is, should a person invest in just one fund family? Well, I personally think a fund family uh, is better than buying individual funds. And as long as the fund family offers you all that you need for the size of your portfolio and the unit size you're using, that's fine. Then you may, if not, have to pick a second family or maybe a third family. But I usually try and stay within one family as my base when designing a portfolio, Linda. What's the difference between current yield and the total return? It's an important thing to know the difference between the total return and the current yield because these terms are advertised and most people see little numbers out there. They say, well, you know, such and such a mutual fund has done 18%, 14% for this fund and so forth. When you hear those numbers, Linda, what is that? What do you think of right away? Current yield? Yeah, but that's not current yield at all. See? That confuses people. That is total return. Would it shock you to know that that current yield is only 1%? The difference in current yield and total return is a crucial thing to understand. And the current yield is really the dividend income coming off it. Never think that you're reading current yield when you hear these and read these numbers. That's the growth portion of the portfolio. Very, very different. If you'd like any further information, call me at the office in Raleigh. That number is 919-872-7000. That's 919-USA-7000. Raleigh, this is Doug Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. Uh, Deborah Lewis, Certified Financial Planner. How can we help you this evening? Hi, I'm calling from a beach house um, on the North Carolina coast that my grandparents own. I've been coming here my whole life, and the entire family enjoys it so much, but a financial advisor has suggested that they sell it. And I understand that there, there's no debt on the house, so I was wondering why they'd be advised to do so. Well, that's sort of a hard question to answer without some specifics. Help me understand a little bit more. It's owned by your parents? Grandparents. grandparents. It's owned by your grandparents. Yes, right. I'm just down here visiting, and I was thinking about it because we would love for them to be able to keep it. Well, of course, they can keep it until they die. Uh, then the question is, uh, what is the size of their estate? Do you have any idea what the size of their estate is? Um, I know they live very comfortably. Oh, that—that's um, uh, how much they spend. But do I, I, 
if I there, guess income. Yeah, if there if there like, is, do they need it for income? Well, if well, I guess we've got so many questions, questions popping yeah. into my head. Yeah. Uh, How old are they, Holly? Um, they're mid seventies. Okay. Oh, a long time. Who's the house go to when they pass away? Um, it would be divided amongst the siblings. Um, so my parents and their brothers and sisters. How many and siblings are there? There's three. Three siblings, and uh, are all three of the siblings financially uh, well off? Um, yes. All right. So then the question is going to be: What do the siblings? What will they want to do at that time? Well, um, if they if they if they own it jointly, then they own one third of a home. And now it's even worse because they may be married. Are the siblings married? Well, her yes, parents yeah. are. There's two parents there. So does each sibling have a spouse? Yes. So now you'd have six owners of one house. And so do you think that would be their reasoning? Uh, I, I well, don't, I, no. Yeah. One of the things that comes to my mind, this is Linda Lewis, is, okay, whatever the value of the home is, and do you know what the value is, roughly? Between 800000 and a million. Okay. So part of the cost <laughs> of owning the house is the property taxes, the upkeep, etc., and... Who knows? I mean, depending on what their other assets are, if they have mutual funds or CDs, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, you know, what, what we don't know what those other assets are that are producing income for them. And, you know, the, the major concern is, number one, how much do they have coming in as income besides Social Security? Um, and are they, I mean, are they comfortable or are they just tired of having the house? I mean... Um, they're retired and they're living comfortably. I mean, um, what kind of an answer were you looking for, Holly? I mean, because I don't like, like why in a financial advisor would advise someone to sell a home a little bit too broad. Maybe we could narrow it down a little bit. Um, I was just wondering if the house had been paid off, why that, that would be suggested that they do so. I don't, well, I, in our practice, many times we advise them not to sell the beach house because at the time of death, whoever inherits it, in this case your siblings, they have what's no, called... No, her parents well, and yeah, their siblings. Yeah, her parents, yeah. yeah. All right, so the, the, the those that inherit it, your parents and your uncles and aunts, they get what's called a step-up in basis, and then they can sell it tax-free. That's the first reason not to sell it. Okay. And many times that's what we advise. On the other hand, as Linda said, a lot of times the parents are being deprived of a lot of income because the kids want it. And then we say, no, that's not right. They need to go ahead and think of their of their of their parents. And if they have a million dollar asset that can produce maybe sixty thousand dollars a year income, then we move to another realm. Is there a way to sell it now? And not pay the capital gains tax because the taxes on sale before death are very high. That's when we use a charitable trust where we s- donate the house or the property to the sa- to, you know, to the um the trust. The trust sells it and starts producing an income for the owners, meaning your grandparents. So it depends more on what the planner knew and why they said to sell it. Uh, in some cases, that's the the worst answer. Other cases, and, it's the best answer. But and, the, but I will say this. At death, it's going to be a very complicated situation. I've seen that many a time in my practice. Let's say there is a divorce later on. And uh, one of those wants 
a part of their inheritance. And that's then then it becomes really difficult because right because a house you can't sell off the bathroom one sixth of it is 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 a is a problem so how do you cash out the one person who wants their part or even worse let's say Holly's parents want to pass away and this is her inheritance and she wants her inheritance she wants hers but how does she get a, how does she get a sixth of the house so I see what you're saying yeah it is very tricky I know of one situation which has been held up for 50 years in multi generational disputes over just this issue so. Uh, that has to be brought into the equation. But if we can help in any way, uh, you may want to go ahead and schedule an appointment at our office, either you or your parents or your grandparents. We do do multi-generational planning. Our office number in Raleigh is 919-872-7000. That's 919-872-7000. We have many clients that do have beach properties and beach homes and situations just like this. We'd be very happy to go ahead and meet with y'all. All right. Well, it All looks right. like Holly has dropped off, but I hope she got the answer that she was looking for. You know, I was uh, I was also thinking that it it could be in some worst case scenarios, it may be that uh, folks that either are terminally ill, or maybe you know having early stages of Alzheimer's or dementia, and like you said earlier, Doug, being able to loose the equity in that real estate to pay, you know. To provide income, right? That's right, Linda. We have a few minutes left before the show's over. Dan is asking a question. Dan's called in and asked us if we would answer the question that goes like this. With the economy now, can someone have too much money in checking account? Well, obviously, you can have too much money in checking account. Uh, you should never have more money than what is needed for emergency. We call this an emergency fund. And we do have some parameters for how much should be in a checking or savings account. And the rest of your money should be properly invested. Deborah, what are the parameters well, we, for an emergency Yeah, fund? we like to use uh, the guideline that you, if you know your monthly living expenses, and let's say you are single, then you, and, and you have job security, you should have six months of uh, an emergency fund. If you are married and there's two people working and you have job security, then you can go down as low as three months of living expenses. So it boils but over that, yeah. yeah, you really want to. Uh, so you start with the living expenses. You really That's do. What you're you saying. want to know your living expenses. Keep that in checking. The rest invested. So you start the answer by saying, "What are my expenses? If my expenses are four thousand a month and I've got uh, good job security, maybe twelve thousand in checking." You've been listening to Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis. Money Matters provides you with a personal financial hotline on any subject where money really matters. For more information, you can call Doug, Linda, or Deborah in Raleigh at 919-872-7000. That's 919-872-7000. Or go to DougAndLinda.com and listen again next Sunday at 6 p.m. for more Money Matters with Doug, Linda, and Deborah Lewis on News Radio 680 WPTF.